0: Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. This is episode number 34 of the GateWorld Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. And this is a show where two nerds talk about the Sci-Fi Channel's long-running franchise, Stargate. Today, David and I are talking about the metaphysics of Stargate. Specifically, our topic this week is, are replicators alive? We got a lot of mail on this one. But before we get to that, we've got the last week's worth of Stargate news to recap quickly, plus a few new additions to GateWorld, and we'll give you a preview of GateWorld's upcoming interview with Stargate composer Neil Acri. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for March 17th, 2009.
1: Marina Baccarin has been cast as the lead alien in V... Uh, v, uh, what was V, Darren? I don't know. I never watched it. You did.
2: It was before v my V
0: talk- was this this awesome Alien Invasion miniseries that NBC aired when I was in the second grade, somewhere around 1982, 83. Uh, and it was this phenomenon. It was this event. You had to watch it every single night. You had to see the lizard people and and Diana eating the the hamster or the mouse or biting the head off the parakeet. I mean, it was great. This stuff, I was seven years old, so this is vivid in my imagination, just as much as Star Wars is. And they're remaking it finally. Marina, of course, has a Stargate connection. There's a reason we're talking about this. Yes, she was the adult Adria in SG-1
1: seasons 9 and 10 and Ark of Truth. Mm-hmm. And if you want to see more of her, check out the V remake. Do we know when it's going to be? Uh, it looks like... Um, I don't know. <laughs> what is it coming back um it is it, um, it under development, I guess. I don't know.
0: It's they're they're at the casting point and they're about to begin filming. So I'm not sure if that means it'll air by the end of the year, maybe this fall. <laughs> and for everyone out there hankering to get their hands on Stargate Atlanta season five, it's coming to D V D finally on June thirtieth here in the United States. You'll be able to get the box set. Uh, this is, information comes to us from TV shows on All five discs, 20 episodes, with the usual bonus features. Bonus featurettes have titles like Tricks of the Trade, Submerging the Stargate, which I guess that's uh, Submerging the Stargate. That's going to be on the shrine. That's right. Probably where the gate was right. mostly underwater. Uh, right. Dr. Jackson Comes to Atlantis will be another featurette from the mid season two parter stargate atlantis goes to vegas and inside the costume department
1: the costume department
0: that's what my information says
1: (laughs) the costume department
0: the costume Um,
1: do you know how they achieved the underwater effect for the the gate in in the shrine
0: i assume that they had a little segment of the gate and put it in a water tank
1: not at all they put a fish tank in front of the camera and did it by forced perspective. Huh, tricky. Can you believe that? That is cool.
0: Well, this is going to come with a suggested retail price of forty nine ninety eight US and uh, just a tick under $70 Canadian. And it's, of course, also going to have audio commentaries. And I still have a shelf full of episodes with audio commentaries that I haven't gone back and watched yet. So season five on June 30th, and then we're also watching the first Blu-ray release for Atlantis, The Fan's Choice, uh, there's a contest going on right now for fans to design and vote for the cover art. Uh, and that is wrapping up soon, if it hasn't already.
1: It got an extension for two it weeks. It
0: got extended for two weeks, so it's still going on at sgafanschoice.com. And so we'll the Blu-ray release, that. as we reported previously, will have the two-parter Premiere Rising and the series finale, Enemy at the Gate.
1: Uh-oh. We talked about judgment last with episode 9 of Stargate Universe. It is not judgment, but justice. I guess Joseph Malazzi corrected this? Yep. Tricky, Joe. He just wanted to screw us up. So, same kind of concept as before, um, I'm sure, that we were talking about in the last podcast, but um, just a little bit of a tweak and a name change. <laughs>
0: And speaking of name changes, hey, there's a segue. The Sci-Fi Channel is also changing its name. The New York Times announced on Sunday that the Sci-Fi Channel this year will change its name to Sci-Fi Channel.
1: It's it's really cool, you know. They've I mean, really
0: they've really turned a corner, I think.
1: I think everyone's feelings on the potential of Sci-Fi Channel will come alive when um, when we go to Sci-Fi
0: Channel. Oh yeah, we're all really excited about it. I'm excited about it. You know, the network launched in 1992 and uh, was always kind of uh, nervous about only being able to appeal to the core science fiction nerds, fanboys and fangirls like you and me. Um, They've tried to broaden themselves. They've tried to do more, you know, reality programming, paranormal programming. They've got shows like uh, Ghost Hunters and Destination Truth and and all these shows and they they've kind of been worried about their branding as the Sci-Fi Channel but now that they've changed it to Sci-Fi Channel I think that they're going to be able to appeal to that broader market a lot more.
1: Oh yeah, it's one-stop shop, most definitely.
0: <laughs> and if you're scratching your head over just what the hell we're talking about, Sci-Fi is rebranding itself as Sci-Fi S Y F Y Yep. The new tagline is "Imagine Greater." We're gonna lose the Saturn logo that's been around for several years. There's a number of reasons. As as I said in half seriousness, you know they've broadened their programming and are trying to appeal to not just the fanboys uh, and fangirls. But uh, the other thing is that they can't copyright sci-fi, S C I F I, because it's it's a generic term that everybody uses. You can't you can't trademark it so sci-fi s-y-f-y they can trademark
1: and then you've got sci-fi portal.com who have gone to alpha pocket or
0: alpha airlock alpha
1: airlock alpha you know and what so everyone wins sure (laughs) just the the world has become slightly more confusing as far as I'm concerned. I hope Michael Hinman was given a very fat check for that.
0: I understand the reasons why the network is doing this, but going from sci-fi to sci-fi spelled differently, I mean, I think it's kind of silly. I don't know that it's necessarily going to accomplish everything they want. If you see it in print, okay, it's, it's a little different, but if you say it out loud, if you're talking about the network with your friends, spreading word of mouth about a show that they need to watch, you know, give up their reservations about science fiction and what that typically entails and watch an awesome show like Battlestar Galactica and it's on the sci-fi channel and it's spelled this way it's I I don't know if it's going to change anything
1: I can see a few YouTube video parodies about how in a in a strange and unusual backwards Watchmen kind of world it would change a few things but as far as I'm concerned it's not worth popping more than a wine bottle for to have press events and everything like that yeah
0: I worked in, in marketing for about 8 years and when I see a news story like this all I can do is kind of sit back and laugh and picture the, the marketing meetings that must have taken place at this, this marketing firm in New York City and somebody comes up with a brilliant idea in order to accomplish all these objectives let's, let's change it to sci-fi and spell it with Y's. that's a great idea And that guy probably got a $100,000 bonus.
1: It's a big to-do, is what it is. So I I wish sci-fi all the best. I really do with with going from sci-fi to sci-fi. But let's get on with it, please.
0: (laughs) GateWorld Features.
1: If you watch Stargate Atlantis when it airs on television and you have a network that likes to compress the end titles, you may not be able to see this name. But Neil Acree, additional music by Neil Acree. Neil is an associate of Joel Goldsmith and is responsible for much of the music that you hear on Stargate Atlantis and Stargate SG-1 from seasons 8 to 10. He also took part in the music for Ark of Truth and Continuum, the two Stargate DVD movies. We sat down and talked with him. I actually sat down with him yesterday and spent a good 45 minutes on the phone with Mr. Acre and uh, talked about his origins as a composer, working with some of the greats. And that interview is going to be going up on the site soon, but here's a clip. What colors do you like to play with when it comes to music? What, why do you... What are you more interested in working on? If you had your your choice, would you go for a more classical sounding project, or would you go for something more mechanical, more industrial?
2: Well, when you said colors, I was going to say fuchsia, but I think I might have missed it. The... <laughs> but no, um, I like the idea of variety. So, so it's hard to say that there's any one thing I'd love to do. Um, I, I also love the idea of you know doing doing a mixture of things. In projects, you know, like orchestral mixed with electronic, you know, mixed with sounds that that I've created from from nothing or from manipulating real-world sounds, Um, that kind of thing's exciting for me. I think every composer wants to do something that's never been heard before, and that's the absolute hardest thing for for any of us to to do. Yeah, that magic
1: formula is really far out there, isn't
2: it? Every once in a while, something will will just pop out of nowhere and and everyone will be like, why didn't I think of that? And, Mm -hmm. you know, but it it happens every once in a while. And I guess we all just want to have our own, you know, stab at that, that kind of thing.
1: But isn't every musician influenced by any other musician that they listen to? Doesn't it all seep into your subconscious?
2: Absolutely. You know, we take in everything that we see and hear, we process it in our own way and then come up with something that's sort of a conglomeration of all those things and you know we hope that it's at least worthy of you know being heard in the same context as some of the influences we have
0: the main discussion our main discussion topic this week is are replicators alive and we asked you in last week's listener question these three questions are they alive are they sentient Or sentient, however you want to pronounce it, like ancients. And the third question was, do they have rights? So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about replicators from the bugs that we know and love from the third season of SG-1 all the way to the human form replicators in the Milky Way galaxy and the Asurans, the human form replicators in the Pegasus galaxy on Atlantis. So are replicators alive?
1: I would like to start off by saying that I do not think that block replicators are sentient. I do believe that they are alive. They can reproduce, can grow in size and in number. I do think that they are alive in that sense. I do not think that block replicators uh, have rights, and I don't think they're sentient, but I do most definitely think that they're alive.
0: Alive in the sense of they're, they're organisms, like, yes, like, they... a, like a biological animal is an organism.
1: Yeah, but they're mechanical, you know, but right. they are perfectly capable of reproducing and learning, despite the fact that they're, they're little blocks. But where they get their containers of spraying acid, I have no idea.
0: Yeah, that's spraying acid. It's pretty cool. Where, where does that seems go? almost biological. So anyways, before we get into this too deeply, let's run down the history of the replicators. They were introduced in the SG-1 season 3 finale, Nemesis. And for a long time, they were just bugs, and we saw different forms of bugs eventually. They were spiders, and then we saw we saw the big flying versions, S- semi flying. They they had wings. They more just kind of jumped through. Yeah, through they look more like
1: giant flies, yeah.
0: And there was the giant mother bug in. Uh, I think I think the first time we saw the mother bug was in season five's enemies.
1: There was a mother bug that uh, was in the submarine. That was the one that looks like a fly. That was the one that was manufacturing the little bugs.
0: Yeah, you're right. That was technically the first. Sort of hive yes. queen mother bug, but no, I'm thinking of the big gigantic mother.
1: Yeah, we've only seen that once in
0: enemies. So then we progress through Stargate history. We get into late season five of SG One, uh, Menace, and we find out where those block replicators came from. They were created as toys by Reese. Reese was a, a robot and created the the blocks, the inch long blocks that that created the original spiders, and then she. She basically told them to protect her and replicate and do whatever it takes to protect her. And they replicated and took over the Asgard galaxy. It's a machine. She just found out her father is dead. It's a machine. Uh, So now when we get to season six, we get human form replicators. And human form replicators, like Fifth are made up of nanites. Tiny, tiny, tiny little versions of blocks. And there are trillions of them that make up an organism that walks and talks and looks like us and in the case of fifth appears to have human emotions and feels betrayed by what sg1 does to him at the end of that episode they're escaping there's still two minutes left no my son they've made a fool of you they won't leave me she promised she promised
1: The thing with Reese was she had um, a flaw in her programming, and that flaw was passed on to the replicator blocks. And when they were inside the Asgard time dilation field and they fixed it so that they had millions of years to eat everything on the planet and then make human replicator versions uh, of of themselves, yes, they attempted to solve their little problem in creating 5th and what they did was created a replicator that was very human.
0: When we're talking about replicators, we're talking on the one hand about bugs, and on the other hand about the human form replicators, both in our galaxy and in the Pegasus galaxy, when we discover the Asuran civilization is more than 10,000 years old. They were created by the Ancients as a weapon of war against the Wraith, and then that experiment was deemed to be a failure, and the Ancients tried to destroy them. The Assurans go on, and they create an entire civilization, which introduces a whole group of, of other questions, I think, about are replicators alive?
1: I'd like to repeat you said. The Assurans go on and create a civilization. hmm I find that very interesting.
0: Well, so in our conversation about whether replicators are alive, and are they sentient, and do they have rights, we're talking about bugs on the one hand and humanoids on the other hand, and it seems, initially, it seems pretty easy to me to sort of discount the bugs. They're a pestilence. They're an infestation they're They're uh, an advanced collection of of these blocks, uh, and so while they may be alive in the sense of of an organism like a spider is alive or a virus is alive, uh, we wouldn't necessarily ascribe them sentience, and almost certainly we wouldn't ascribe them rights any more than a spider colony would have rights.
1: Their purpose is to devour and propagate themselves and when they have nothing else to do they lay dormant until more raw materials come available which they can consume they can't contribute in a positive way to the galaxy
0: yeah but you know i gotta wonder when i look at at some of the evil humanoid replicator characters like first and with the asurans oberoth i gotta wonder is that distinction between the bugs and the humanoids really all that significant is it just because the bug form does not have a human appearance is not anthropomorphized that that we can quickly discount them.
1: Are you saying if Oberoth was a box on wheels, I wouldn't pay him any consideration? Is that what right. you're really getting
0: at? He is. He's an artificial life form who looks and talks like us, or in the case of Fifth, acts like us and, and seems to emote like us and want to form relationships and, and human connections. Is the fact that he looks and talks like us? Does that necessarily help him to cross over from? not being sentient to being sentient or from not having rights to having rights
2: well
1: the way i look at it is our ancestors created him and that purpose was destruction i think that is wrong we owe him our consideration in trying to fix him to make him something other than a killing machine
0: there's two requisite references that i want to make here to star trek the next generation uh, let me
1: guess. Let me guess.
0: Can you guess one both of them, of them? The one of them's obvious.
1: The box on wheels, I already mentioned, I believe, and that was Measure of a Man. That was in the episode that was back in the back of my mind. A great hour of television.
0: Mac Jackson posted: Are replicators alive? Not even a little bit. As much as we have made a personal connection to human robots throughout sci-fi, such as Data from Star Trek, and C-3PO in Star Wars, and would love to have them have souls. They're just advanced robots who replicate human emotions. I've always agreed with Jack's view and practical focus. When dealing with robots, you have to be able to pull the trigger and end the threat. It isn't about our personal connections. It's about the safety of the universe.
1: It was Luisco's comment that I... um pinged off of. I can never understand why people think it was immoral to destroy the replicator planet Asurus. The replicators aren't people no matter how much they may appear to be. Their consciousness, as McKay put it, is just a bunch of ones and zeros. They may have developed a society, but that doesn't make them sentient. As for their rights, they threw away all their rights when they started relentlessly consuming world after world in order to replicate. Personally, I see no ethical issue in destroying a world populated with replicators. They're just machines. The only exception I can think of is fifth, who appear to develop human emotions. However, the fact that he was one of a kind only further proves other replicators are not alive. Now, Luisko, I'd like to comment right here and now, is mm-hmm. a machine. Lewisco is a machine. Our consciousness is akin to something like ones and zeros. I mean, I'm communicating with you because I am able to hear our conversation over this, these primitive ears that I have through a series of electrical impulses that are sent to my brain. Yeah, yeah. That's a very primitive way of putting it, but that's not unlike a machine. It is a machine. Now, the issue that I raise with Luisco is they threw away all of their rights when they started relentlessly consuming world after world in order to replicate. The problem that I have with that is it was in our power to stop them from replicating, but McKay deliberately switched them on. That was his choice because he wanted them to go off and fight the Wraith. It is within our power to shut them off. We chose not to do that and in consequence of that we took to annihilate that civilization they were perfectly happy sitting by themselves saying that we'll eliminate the wraith in a time of our choosing they weren't doing anything wrong as far as we can tell they weren't driving anybody nuts we saw a chance to take advantage of what they originally were built for and we turned them into the monsters that they became that was us and it just made for a much more dramatic ending to blow them up.
0: Yeah, just to play devil's advocate, uh, when later on, after we, we reactivate their their base code to attack the Wraith in Season four's Lifeline, um, when McKay is working with Todd later on in the season, I think it it's made clear that we can't go back and undo that decision. We can't switch it off because they've taken control of their own code in such a way that Todd and McKay and the science team together can't figure out how to shut it off. This issue of the destruction of Asurus is is a huge issue. It's very relevant to this conversation, but I would also like to talk about it in another conversation, which is the the conduct of a just war, mm-hmm. in in the Stargate universe, and in a
1: future podcast, you mean? Yeah, in a
0: future podcast, and and do you assume because Oberoth is nasty and has attacked us and has sent his minions after us? Do you mm-hmm. can you then assume that because they are our declared enemy, that therefore the entire 10,000-year-old civilization is our entire enemy. That is, can you declare war on an entire race? Yeah. Is there anyone on that planet who mm-hmm. would be considered a non-combatant? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a that's the topic for another podcast. Here, we're talking about the fact that the Asurans apparently had rights, uh, in Luisco's view, and then threw them away when they started you know, acting evil and, and destroying well, other civilizations.
1: Well, when Nehem said we're going to Atlantis and uh, we're going to destroy it and Weir asks why and Neum says retribution. If that isn't an act of a living being, I don't know what is. Yeah. Now, it's it's a cruel and it's an it's evil a, act. The machines don't get pissed and seek vengeance.
0: Yeah. And I think that that is the sort of thing that demonstrates that replicators are alive. And, and they are sentient because they're capable of, of doing those sorts of very human things. They're capable of having wrath.
1: Exactly. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing.
0: Another question here that I think we're getting at is when you are evil, when you do something that is bad, or when your entire programmed existence from your base code seems to be driven towards only doing things that are bad, if you're evil, do you have rights? If you do something wrong, do you lose your rights? That's a, a kind of a different question.
1: And who are you to determine whether or not I lose my rights? It always goes back for me, back to that conversation that we had with Martin Garrow in his office, where I became visibly jaded when I posed the question, isn't it our obligation to to try and solve their flaw? Or I said something along the lines of that, and Martin just went, no. And he was saying that from the perspective of uh, an executive producer on a show and making the absolute darndest, coolest show that he can. And I completely understand that. What, what I'm saying is, from an ethical and moral standpoint, it was the wrong thing to do. It was the wrong thing to nuke that planet.
0: The the writers have uh, very much seem to have a, a practical point of view when it comes to this issue. And, well, we could spend an hour dealing with the, the ethical concerns over nuking Asuras uh, like we did in First Strike. Or, we could do it and Present it as kind of an action beat, and yeah, our characters are wringing their hands a bit, and we're not sure. But at the end of the day, we don't spend a lot of time dwelling on it because that's. I mean, it's it's. I hate to say it, but for Atlantis, it's not the kind of show that it was.
1: Yeah, it was a very Nixonian move, and it kind of. I to this day, it surprises me every time I every time I I watch first strike and i see those bombs fall i'm like oh my god for the first time i am in conflict with a decision that these guys have made yeah um uh, truly both the producers of the show and the characters themselves and i stand firmly beside weir when she says i think i may have to resign when this is over i stand firmly beside her
0: yeah i'm glad they had her say that yeah oh yeah completely consistent with her character which at least shows you that, that the writers recognize that, that that issue is out there, uh, and there's, there is a tension between the, the very pragmatic military mind of someone like Colonel Ellis and yeah. the, the more diplomatic... Elizabeth Weir.
1: The attack and First Strike was a very bold one and a very interesting direction for the show to go in mm-hmm. when, when, we're, when we're trying to prevent an attack on Atlantis and an, attack, an ultimate attack on the, on the Milky Way galaxy. But that ball is driven home in Be All My Sins Remembered when the glee on McKay and Carter's face translates into the entire annihilation of a planet.
0: Yeah, this is really starting to, to uh, encroach on our other podcast topics, so let's save further conversation okay. along those lines. Okay. Uh, and to take a step back now, I mentioned two episodes of, of Next Generation that are percolating in my head, and one is Measure of a Man, the, mm-hmm. the defense of data as, as a person. Uh, the other one is Season six is The Quality of Life, which is the exocomps. And these guys are little robots. They look nothing like humans. They're not humanoid in the slightest. They don't talk. Uh, they're constructed to be tools, quite literally, in, in the most plain sense of the word. Yeah, they're,
1: they're basically droids.
0: They're little droids. They're droid basically robots. like R two D two. Well, even R two, I mean, R two has a personality and he's a character. Exocomps were yeah. barely even characters. They had little squeaks and squawks, yeah. um, that that kind of made them into characters slightly. But in this episode, Data basically comes to the conclusion that they're acting uh, in their own interests for self-preservation. Mm-hmm. So Which therefore, he makes the argument that they like him are alive. They're a, a piece of technology that's made by human hands or in this case a particular alien's hands, and they're alive and they have rights. You can't send them into a mission that's that's going to destroy them.
1: I will be the first to acknowledge that it's it's easy to say that a, that a being that looks like a human is alive. And a box on wheels is not.
0: And that's exactly my point in bringing up these these two episodes is that it's so much easier for us. And, And I think when we look at a lot of the comments that our listeners posted, I get the sense that if something looks like a human and talks like a human and sounds like a human, then we're much more willing to leap to the conclusion that they're alive and that they're sentient and that they have rights.
1: Which I suppose is only human nature. Yeah. But you know what? That's all we've got.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it looks like a person, so I guess I need to treat it like a person. And if it doesn't look like a person, then obviously I don't. I'm not arguing for replicator bug rights.
1: You know, you say if it looks like a person, then I should treat it like a person. But I think depending on how it treats me is how I should stand to whether or not I treat it like a person.
0: That's interesting.
1: How it interacts with me. However it's constructed from its own responses... Is, is how I will define how I will treat it.
0: Mm. Eternal Density makes uh, just that point. He or she says, In my opinion, the block replicators are no different from organic bugs. I don't have any more problem blowing them to bits than squishing bugs. I wouldn't call them any more alive than a biological virus. The Milky Way human form replicators, I would say, are alive and sentient. I think they have rights and responsibilities, just like other races in the Milky Way. In general, I'd call the replicators, which look human, sentient. And here comes your point. How we treat them depends on their level of free will and how they wish or are programmed to treat us and others. If they're trying to destroy us, we have the right to defend ourselves.
1: Absolutely. I completely agree that we have the right to defend ourselves, but I'm not going to go any more than that because definitely that war topic is going to be approaching now.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's fighting against the replicators that are trying to destroy us and genocide. So, yeah, we'll come back to that in a, in a future podcast.
1: And Jabretek goes on and says, I believe the human form replicators and assurance are sentient. A human being is just a biological machine controlled by a supercomputer. All that we are, our emotions, our thought processes, our memories are controlled by our brains machine of equal complexity made from mechanical parts shouldn't be any inferior to one made of biological parts. And that was the point that I was making um, in relation to Lewisco's mm-hmm. uh, post, and Braytak just hit it on, on the head there as far as I'm concerned. I agree with that 100%.
0: That we are, we are biological machines ourselves.
1: We are absolutely biological machines. And if you look in, in the species, some of us are seemingly more advanced than others. My uncle had Down syndrome, and the most ecstatic part of his day was receiving a box of bicycle playing cards and turning them over on his desk one at a time. And the look of utter glee on his face when he would do this now was my my uncle who had down syndrome any more or less alive than I am I don't know and frankly I'm not sure if I should go
0: there what you're making me think of is this this issue that you brought up and that uh, eternal density brought up of of how a person or a machine treats other people and uh, are people with um, mental disabilities or you could say even our children people, mm-hmm. because, you know, children can be little rat finks and treat <laughs> people horribly, you know, because that's that's where they are in their development and they still need to be taught, uh, mm. is is a replicator like Fifth, who is m- in large measure childlike and still needs mm-hmm. to be taught and to come into a sense of who he is as a being, you know, is he evil? Thinking, thinking of the later Fifth, the, the...
1: Yes, the injuring and torturing Carter Fifth. Yeah, yeah. The genesis of where this idea came from for this discussion for me is the shot in Be All My Sins, remembered of the neutronium ball sinking into surus But all around that ball were buildings of gorgeous architecture mm-hmm. and these beautiful Japanese gardens. Gorgeous plants and who knows animal life, I doubt it. But a machine that cannot think creatively and independently in any sort, cannot create that kind of beauty. And I'm sure a lot of people are groaning in the audience saying, well, an art director came up with that design, you know, but that design was meant to be the Assyrians. And that landscape, in my opinion, was an act of a being that was alive.
0: We've made the distinction between biological and technological organisms. And if we grant the possibility, at least in a science fiction universe, like Star Trek or Stargate, of a technological organism. You can say that R2-D2 or Data or 5th are alive. The next question is, uh, does that person or being have a soul? Can you program a soul? Or uh, is it possible for a machine to become more than the sum of its parts? Which was always the argument with Data, that he was not just a a collection of you know, positronic pathways and his endoskeleton.
1: Can we really say whether or not the replicators have souls? I don't
0: know. I don't well, think we yeah. can. This is where we get very very metaphysical and very theological, I think, in talking about a soul. What but is a it soul? all
1: is based on your opinion and my opinion of what a soul is. Sure. That's all that we can make of it, and I'm sure our opinions specifically, according to our beliefs, are, are very similar. Souls, I think come from something else than the physical well obviously you know what is a soul (laughs) what is a katra what is you know that sort of thing Uh but i'm not sure that replicators like the assurans or the humanoid replicators do have souls i don't think so but that does not negate the fact that we owe them something because we as dare i say superior beings or beings of, of greater experience have a responsibility to that which we have created. We have to clean up our own mess.
0: Yeah, and I think you could you could safely say that even if a being doesn't have a soul, that it it can still have rights, and mm-hmm. and we owe it a, a certain measure of respect and uh, protection. Mm-hmm. Well, my
1: dog, my dog is sitting next to me over here. I do not believe that. I I think that I think that Destin is conscious. I mean, he's looking up at me and he's listening to me call out his name and he recognizes that I am, that I am speaking to him mm-hmm. and he knows what words like walkies means. He looks <laughs> at me right there. But I do not believe that he has a soul and I do not believe that he has an afterlife. Um, but that does not mean that I do not treat him with the utmost respect and care and keep him from coming into harm's way. Mm-hmm. He is a being that was created by something greater than me and it is my obligation to care for him as a responsible pet owner Mm -hmm. the ancients created the replicators and just like just about everything else that we have ever seen them create they were not responsible with it they never were and they decided to clean up the mess by exterminating the entire civilization and they fail. I think the, the ancients at some point had to have made some kind of a determination where they said to themselves, these beings are not alive. The High Council had to have said something like that in order to get the decree passed for the worships to be sent to wipe them all out, because they couldn't figure out what their problem was. So I think we know what the ancients felt about them.
0: Uh, we have one voicemail on this topic. Let's listen to this real quick.
1: Hi, this is Joe from Cranberry, New Jersey. I think that the replicators are not alive, they are robots, but they do nonetheless have rights. They are a sentient being, they've got the intelligence and the wisdom of a human or an ancient, but that being said, they are an evil sentient race and should be treated like the Goa'uld or the Ori.
0: Joe brings up this point of the replicators being sentient, but they're evil. And so, if they're evil, they should be treated like our other enemies, the Ori, or the Gould, or the Wraith. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this, mm-hmm. this uh, the addition of the category of good and evil?
1: I think it's relative, but I do see his point. Replicators exist merely to increase their numbers and do so without prejudice. They are no more evil than a virus. The evil virus. The Wraith are, are another example of, of possibly, even though Atlantis failed to explain this, Mm. a race that we helped create
0: and a race that that as opposed to the replicators which are very technological the wraith are very animalistic
1: they're a biological scourge that's what they are they're they're basically biological replicators they consume um but they do not they do not propagate themselves they do not reproduce they well they clone i i do take i have to take that back but we're talking about replicators yeah um it, it, it just got, I just continue to go back to that to the point where in in my own mind where we created these beings and we have a responsibility at, at least we owned up to the responsibility of annihilating them considering the fact that we created them so <laughs> we did take, kind of take care of that but I don't know man
0: it's tricky to classify an entire species as good or evil uh, we saw that with the ghoul there were good gould yeah uh, like obviously the Tokra, but then even later in the series when we got to i think i'm thinking of uh season seven's fallout where we met a goauld who was in the service of ball uh, was a spy for ball on jonas's planet and she turned out to be kind of good she kind of sacrificed herself for for jonas and his people that line between good and evil is is not necessarily always sharp to defined. there are gray areas
1: I don't think we can classify something until we know who they are, until we know what to do with them. We never really knew the Asurans. They found out that Atlantis still existed, and they kind of went after it and tried to blow it up. They tried to blow up our city. We blew up their city. Uh, but Neum, uh and his hench ladies, you know, who wanted ascension, yeah. who wanted to be, become something more than they were, yeah. went to Oberoth and said, these beings are of no threat to us. Let them go. They were fighting against their base code. They were fighting against that little line in their subroutine that made them so defensive and made them want to enact vengeance on Atlantis. There were dissenters in Oberoth's group that were saying, we shouldn't be doing this. Exactly,
0: and I think that very presence of those dissenters shows that you cannot classify all replicators or all Asurans uh, just as, as a, a monolithic force. They're, they're an evil race because there are dissenting groups. They're, there's this group of people who did not like the way that Oberoth was conducting things. Um, but we, uh, by we, I mean Atlantis and Earth, decided mm-hmm. that that minuscule hint of a resistance movement was not sufficient, that we needed to mm-hmm. classify the entire species, the entire planet, as a threat. Replicators, as as a technological organism, replicators in any form cannot be allowed to exist because of the threat that, that we have seen.
1: And despite the fact that they put up with all of our crap, annihilating their planet and everything else, there was still a group of them, led by Elizabeth Weir, who were still determined to find salvation and ascend.
0: Yeah. Now what do you do when you have a replicator who is Elizabeth Weir? Who is one of our own?
1: Was Elizabeth's soul transferred into that Fran body? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say no. That's my opinion. But the spirit of Elizabeth Weir—I'm <laughs> I'm dancing on an iPad here. <laughs> in terms of classifications, the behavior of Elizabeth Weir was still intact.
0: Yeah. The the big question in in the season five episode that we're talking about, "Ghost in the Machine," is is this our Elizabeth? whatever you want to call it, her soul, her spirit, her consciousness, is this our Elizabeth, or is this a technological copy of her?
1: But does that matter if the end intentions of that new Elizabeth Weir are the same?
0: I think that's a very good question.
1: Her intent was to, yes, protect people, her, her new people, but she still had every intent of, of sacrificing herself to protect her old people, us, the Atlanteans, the, well, the new residents of Atlantis. Um, and I think that rang true with the very last sequence in the show of her Mm -hmm. going through that Stargate and freezing to death. And
0: that made me think that it was our Weir, and if it it was not her actual consciousness, if our Weir was, was already dead, then at least it was a very good copy. It was not like Replicator Carter.
1: No, not at all, and Replicator Carter had her own agenda. I think Replicator Carter was corrupted by Fifth, and got a nice, decent look into what Fifth was peddling and said, hmm, this is very tasty, and continued down that path. Had she been brought up kind of like Fran was, I don't think that would have been the case with Replicator Carter. But who knows? I think Replicator Carter was um, a great example on the good and evil of the being of Samantha Carter, where we have a light side and we have a dark side. And I don't think that was explored nearly enough. Was more in favor of the action and everything like that, and, and Daniel's journey in that episode, but mm-hmm. uh, that series of episodes. But you know, I think she was another great example.
0: Now, the question that we're we're talking about right now is whether a technological body, a robot mind, or a replicator mind, is capable of housing the sort of, of consciousness or soul or spirit as a human biological body. Um, mm-hmm. And Sci writes about this. Sci says. I think the issue of whether or not replicators are alive is mostly about whether or not a computer can be alive. There have been more than one Stargate episodes where a living person or alien has had their mind downloaded into a computer, been in control of it, and then returned to their body, entity, revelations, new order. Unless we believe Sam, Thor, and Jack are no longer alive after they've had their consciousness in a computer... Then we have to accept that in the Stargate world, a computer can carry a living, sentient entity, able to interact with the world in a conscious way. So yes, I believe replicators have to be classified as alive, their behavior is definitely sentient in my mind, and being alive and sentient, they should have rights.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely in the show, that that definitely follows a, a great path. I look at Skynet. The Terminator mythology is one that i've been following since I was a little kid way before I was supposed to and the 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 idea that a, a machine can accumulate so much information that it can suddenly art consciousness i 've never been able to figure out how that works hmm. the, the, a, a machine can accumulate so many encyclopedias that ah uh, suddenly it's dawned consciousness
0: yeah, the emergence of consciousness is a is a major theme in science fiction
1: but i don't think that you can. Write consciousness into into code, in real life, and I don't think I don't think that that's possible. I think that computers can can receive only that which we tell them to compute. Mm-hmm. They can't go off on their own and do anything without us. And ju- and giving them a wad of information and telling it compute this will not at any there's a disconnect there between where. At one point, the computer possesses all this information, and then the computer by itself knows how to pedal it. That doesn't happen. But yeah. in the science fiction world, it, of course, does. You know, computers can can arrive at their own thoughts and arrive at, at their own conclusions without virtue of any external input. And uh, that's what this is about.
0: You know, thinking about the emergence of consciousness and, and the evolution of the human form replicators in the Stargate universe, trying to draw some conclusions and come to some final decision about these <laughs> these big metaphysical questions. I want to say, based on, on their behavior in the episodes, uh, which maybe just looking at their behavior is not a very good way to judge this, but I look at characters like First in uh, Unnatural Selection and think, that guy's not totally all there. He's not evolved. He, he's not had a consciousness evolve yet.
1: His purpose is the original purpose of the replicators. Yes. Yeah,
0: he's like the bugs, but he's got two arms and two legs and can talk. And so first through fourth I would I would have to say are are not quote unquote alive, not any more than and sixth. Then then a bug is alive. And sixth. Fifth is evolutionarily different. Uh and fifth, fifth, at least based on his behavior, I've got to say fifth is alive and sentient.
1: He wanted his replicators to replicate only to grow his army so that he could defend himself. I think,
0: at least originally, fifth. The betrayal is of fifth, not of the other replicators. And then, as as fifth goes along, he's he's just this spurned little boy, mm-hmm. uh, and so he's acting he's acting, in a, frankly, in a very human way, in in creating replicator and seeking that that sort of revenge.
1: Just like Oberoth's people did when they found out that Atlantis was still out there, well, we're gonna have to go and whack them. You know we're gonna have to finish them off.
0: I look at Oberoth and his behavior more in terms of first and and we know that he was he was the first human form replicator that was created by the ancients. Mm-hmm. Uh, that dude is ten thousand years old. He seems more first like to me, more like like an unthinking running by mm-hmm. his programming um but again, he he you know, he he operates on vengeance. Other characters like Neum, I guess it's it's those sympathetic characters that they've given us that, that feel more human because the, they've been written in a way that we can sympathize with them.
1: Also remember that Oberoth was a politician and he was thinking in terms of what was best for him and what was best for his people. So robotic and and a lateral thought you know kind of goes hand in hand with that <laughs> uh, with with politicians but uh, that that was a tangent that I just wanted to tap on real quick
0: well now we promised to talk about beloved fran
1: fran, fran is, is a
0: replicator that we made not not mm-hmm. the ancients not our ancestors but rodney mckay made fran mm-hmm. is she is she a special case
1: i don't think so i think that she you is just put her as in the alive. same
0: In the same category as Oberoth and Neum and Fifth.
1: I think it's important to mention that uh, Fran was given the most simplistic number of algorithms or whatever you want to call it, as could be built to make her, to allow her to walk and talk and complete her mission. Mm -hmm. But even then, she showed signs of independent thought. She looked at McKay's plan and said, Rodney, this ain't going to work. Here's what you need to do. Mm Mm-hmm. And everyone was wondering, okay, is she duplicitous? Is she really a a replicator that is playing a kind of double agent thing to kind of help her people out, even though she's never met them? No.
0: Is she trustworthy?
1: Yeah. And she turned out to absolutely be trustworthy and won the hearts and minds of so many of us. So, yeah, she is absolutely alive. And when you go out of your way to create something... You decide in a spur of passion with your loved one to create a night of fun and out pops a baby nine months later. There's your problem. You have to deal with it. You can't just discard it by saying, well, I had no intention of doing this. No, you may not have had any intention, but it happened nonetheless.
0: Well, yeah, if anything is going on in that scene with, with Rodney and Fran on board the ship, uh, in the middle of Beyond My Sins Remembered when they're en route to complete her mission. Mm-hmm. If anything emerges out of that, it's it's her consciousness, I think. The fact that even though she's going to do what she was simply programmed to do, she is thinking. Mm-hmm. And she's thinking and she about is, her identity and her fate.
1: But she is okay with doing that which she was created to do. Mm-hmm. She says, uh, you know, wh- how how often... I don't don't really know how she has any base reference to compare this with, but how often does a being get to recognize their purpose and fulfill it at the same time? And that speaks volumes right there. Philosophers have been peddling these kinds of questions for, I mean, the Chinese have been doing this for a very long time, you know. I mean, this is not going to be figured out. We're not going to answer the
0: what does it mean to be alive question in 45 minutes. But no. um, it's an interesting discussion. I I feel like we've kind of been all over the map on this one. So I'm interested to yeah. hear what listeners have to say about, about this podcast. And if this conversation was interesting to listen to. Uh, because we definitely like to do more on the metaphysics of Stargate in the future. But now, to try and bring it down, boil all this down to some definitive statements, some definitive opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think replicators are alive are they sentient and do they have rights
1: the assurans and the uh, the replicators one through six, uh the, the replicators that that evolved after the asgard time dilation field um uh, allowed them to evolve absolutely yes 100 percent. i do believe that they are alive I, I do believe that they are something that i cannot as a you classify because i am too small to do so
0: <laughs> mm. i think it's pretty easy to say that at least biologically they're alive i mean if we're willing in in a science fiction realm to to take the the conceit that a technological being uh can be alive then that necessarily gives them a certain amount of rights as much as we might ascribe rights to animals as we said to to Destin, Destin has rights um so, you know that question of sentience is kind of the ultimate one for me. Again, going back to data in a measure of a man, is he not just alive, but is he a person? Is he mm-hmm. do we do we equate him on essentially on the same level as as us? And again, I think that just because something has two arms and two legs and can talk doesn't necessarily automatically answer that question. So, some replicators like first at least, at least first through fourth and sixth, I want to say no. These guys are not mm-hmm. quite evolved to the point of sentience yet. Uh, but when you introduce that human element that was introduced with fifth, and that I think that pretty much all of the Asurans had, uh, they were evolved far enough in their human form beyond their, their bugness. Although in the, the Pegasus Galaxy, they were never originally bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, those those characters, I think, are evolved enough to be able to be called sentient. Uh, and they're beings with whom we can interact and we should not think ourselves as above them. Um, because we're capable of engineering a character like Fran. Uh, you know, just like you said, two people are capable of getting together and engineering another human being. So yeah, I think, I think they're sentient and they have rights. And as I hope we talk about in the future, uh, nuking their planet has some pretty serious implications when you are no longer willing to think of them as simply a piece of technology gone awry. You're listening to the GateWorld Podcast.
1: We had one more voicemail that had nothing to do with the replicator conversation. It comes from Chad.
0: Yes,
2: this is Chad from St. Paul, Minnesota, and this is in response to your question of whether Earth's spaceships improved or harmed the storytelling of S U one and I personally think it
0: helped. And it was kind of inevitable. They spent so much time trying to recover alien technologies, and how could they just not eventually come up with that? Um, not to mention how many times were they denied, how many times did they
1: hear, we're going to give you this device, and then they just didn't get it, get it whatever the device was, um, whether it be
0: because the aliens couldn't give it to them, they couldn't procure it, or they just couldn't have relationships with that race. Uh, that being said, it did see... It did see to provide an easy way for rescue, um, I think that could be one of the downfalls. The ships seem to be somewhat beyond our capabilities.
1: Uh, but without the addition of the ships, Atlantis and Universe would not have been possible. It would be a very hard sell.
0: Thanks, Chad, for your call, and thanks to Joe for the voicemail and everybody who wrote in, contributed to this week's conversation. I think that was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I hope it meets people's expectations instead setting instead of leaving them absolutely mystified. <laughs>
0: It's okay to be esoteric every five episodes or so. So Open Line Night is coming up next week, and this is where you basically get to tell us what to talk about. We want to hear your voicemails. We want to see your posts over on the forum. Just give us a topic. Ask us a question. Anything that's Stargate-related, maybe anything that's Star Trek The Next Generation-related. We don't have any problem talking about that, do we?
1: Lost? Best Star? Absolutely not. Give us a running head start and send us something.
0: This is our second installment of Open Line Night. Call into the Gate World podcast hotline. Tell us what you want to hear us talk about. Ask us a question. Share your thoughts on the past of Stargate, um, your favorite episodes, things that you're thinking about. You can respond to our metaphysical conversation today. Uh, or the future of Stargate, where you're thinking right now about Stargate Universe, whether you're going to watch it not watch it. Uh, everything's fair game for Open Line Night. That's our March 24th show. And then on March 31st, we're going to circle back around and talk about Stargate history one more time. We're up to SG-1 Season 2. And then April 7th, this is going to be a wild, wacky show. What's going on in April? We're going to be in Vancouver, British
1: Columbia, Canada, at the Hilton Vancouver Metro Town in Burnaby. Whew! And
0: that is for the Creation, Creation 2009 Convention.
1: 2009 Convention. For Stargate, the Mecca
0: this is the big daddy of Stargate conventions. Everybody yes. who is anybody is going to be there. And are. us. Indeed. Little old us. So, uh, our April 7th show is almost live from Vancouver because it will be recorded. We're going to try and come up with some new things to do. Maybe accost some of you in the hallways and talk with you. Ooh, accost. Uh, we'll talk about the convention. We've got some of our other our other. Uh, gateworlders there some of our forum moderators and Chad Colvin who's our assistant editor is going to be there so maybe we'll have a little roundtable discussion talk about Stargate talk about the convention talk about food Um, we'll also be making our annual visit to the Bridge Studios where Stargate Universe is currently being filmed and talk with the producers there so tune in on April 7th you might get a little snippet if we can get away with it of uh, some of those conversations and that'll be exciting
1: yeah it's going to be a fun-filled evening.
0: Well, that's our podcast for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. In this episode, David and I talked about that big old fat question, are replicators alive? And, of course, we don't think that we necessarily came to any good conclusions, but
2: <laughs> there you go.
0: We also gave you a preview of the upcoming interview with Stargate composer Neil A. Creed. And for links to everything we talked about today, head over to the site and look for the episode number 34 show notes.
1: Feedback. We love feedback. Give us a call on the hotline at 616 712 1647. Leave us a voicemail day or night and you will get on the show. Most likely. Or leave us a post in the cast feedback throughout on GateWorld forum and post a review on iTunes or the other podcast sites that GateWorld is linked to.
0: Seriously, anytime, day or night. I, I always worry when we give this phone number that people think that if it's 3 o'clock in the morning, they can't call. They've got to see yeah there's, for there's, the next
1: day. Yeah, there, there's no living being on the other end of it. Just a recording of Darren's wife.
0: This does not ring to my home, so <laughs> call the voicemail box. Um, we, we would very much like to make this much more about you guys calling in and, and sharing your thoughts and talking, and less about us reading your, your edited-down opinions. That's right. And, of course, it's always a good idea to kind of collect your thoughts before you record the voicemail um it's easy to as i'm doing right now kind of stumble over your words and not necessarily know what you have to say so
1: i think the ideal voicemail length is, is 20 to 25 seconds compose your thoughts before you call in think about you know what you'd like to to talk about maybe jot down a few notes
0: i don't mind them if they're 45 seconds 60 seconds even if they're good well, yeah yeah, exactly. But you guys are good. Everybody's good.
1: As long as the length is correctly juxtaposed to the content.
0: So give us a call and let us hear your beautiful voice. And don't make me go copy and paste off the forum quite so much. Because I'm just going to stop doing it unless you start calling me. That's
1: right. You know, one of these days, you we just have to stop. <laughs> we just have to say no more on the forum. You know, the podcast uh, news story, Sure. I would definitely use that mm-hmm. for the previous week. But forum
0: is the forum. We'll see you back here next week for Open Line Night from GateWorld.net. This is Darren. This is David, And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast.